you're able, would you stand, please, to want to read the word of God together. We just sang a song, Who Can Stop the Lord Almighty? It comes from the text that we're going to be putting ourselves under this morning, and I want you to read it out loud with me. I've got two verses. I don't know if both these verses are possible to be on the screen, but let's read this together. Romans 8, verses 31 through 32 say this. Say it out loud with me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we come before you in the word that you've given to us through the apostle Paul. And right now I ask that you would anoint my words, that they might touch the very core of our souls, that through your word revealed through your spirit, we might come to know your son. And in knowing your son, we might have life everlasting. This is our hope today. God, we come to you. We need you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. This is a uh, particularly special Mother's Day for me in, in a kind of a backwards, poignant way. Uh, it wasn't but a few days ago that my own mom said goodbye to her dad. And so, you know, my mom's always been a bit of a quiet, like, reminiscent, reflective person. I remember a couple of days uh, before I, I left to go to college, moms, I don't know if you've kicked a kid out of your house yet and uh, done so sending them off somewhere where you hoped that you know, the world wouldn't eat them alive. I remember sitting watching TV when I was 17, 18 years old, and from the other side of the room, my mom would just look at me awkwardly. <laughs> like, the TV's over there, mom, stop looking at me. And she'd like have to gaze away, and she was just re- reminiscing. She's a reminiscent person. She's just thinking about all the things in her mind of the good times we've had, what hopes she had for me. And um, in the midst of my grandfather passing away, my mom was out uh, going through his belongings, helping bring order to things, setting up uh, arrangements. And my mom had one of those similar, like, gazing off in the distance type of moments where uh, I was just grateful for the, for the opportunity in, in that to, to share with her how grateful I am for my family and for my mom. To be able to say, Mom, thanks for being who you are, and thanks for, you know, the fact that you've always loved us and always served our family and done things, you know, at inconvenient times. You know, now's not a good time for my grandfather to have died for my mom, and so it's like, but you go, and she's doing it, and it's, it's, she's just the type of person she is, and I'm so thankful for the mom that I have. Simultaneously, as I was sharing this with my mom, I was thinking to myself about how increasingly aware I am that my wife, Kristen, should be in the running for mom of the universe as our kids grow and our schedules get crazier and packed and we do our best as a couple to shape them in love and grace and faith. I feel this way, and you know, I'm, not, I'm not a sociologist, but as a father, let me just share how I feel. Right, this is like just Dan Jacobson's thoughts about how my own family's going, but I, it resonates with a couple of yours too. I feel as a dad, sometimes I'm just chopped liver. I mean, here's what I mean. As a dad, I feel sometimes that like my influence as my kids is simply a, a stabilizing influence so that the good and consistent work that my wife has been doing might be heard by my kids. What I mean is I constantly feel a sense as a dad of lostness without my wife. Dad can try and shape a kid, 
but mom can light a kid on fire. No, really. Dad is trying to lay down the law. It sounds like this. Hey, buddy, can you, if it's not too much trouble, pick up that sock while you're watching TV? It's dad laying down the law. The kid doesn't move. And then mom. Pick up this sock or I'm busting the TV and cutting the neighborhood's Comcast line. Fire. Dad tries to encourage a kid. Hey, you'll do better next time. You can't be good at everything. Someone has to finish last. But mom can soothe even the saddest, sorrowful soul and get that kid up and moving again. Moms light fires that make us move. I was talking to Danny Saez, who's our pastoral resident here at Bethel. He's from Ecuador. We were talking about how Mother's Day in the Latino community is a really big deal. He, he actually said that it's like a fraction of a percent less of a big deal than Easter. He's like, there's Easter and then there's like Mother's Day. And it's like they're touching each other. That's how important Mother's Day is. And if you're here today and you don't normally go to church, it was your mom, wasn't it? Fire. Maybe I should say fuego. Moms inspire us. Moms affirm us. Moms are for us. And since moms are for us, we have motivation and assurance. There's no question about it. We have what it takes. It's going to be okay. Mom told me it's going to be good. And this dynamic in life, I think, is the closest emotional dynamic, the closest emotional parallel that we have in this world to picture the similar relational dynamic between us and God. It's the dynamic that Paul is screaming out in the apex of his letter here in Romans, Romans 8, 31. This is, um, this, is, this is Paul's shout section of the whole entire book. If this was a black church, y'all be shouting already because that's actually a thing in the black church. It's like I say, it's a shout section. They go, hallelujah, that's right, come on now. In our church, maybe we could call it an amen corner. I say that, and you, some of you think of Augusta, and maybe that's true, too. It's, like, pretty and whatnot. You need a, a prayer to get through it. But um, an amen corner is, is uh, the preacher's friend. I don't know if you've ever been in a church. Some of you hate this so much. You're like, the preaching is supposed to come from the stage into my ears and then go out the other ear. Preaching, can we all get on the same page of what preaching is? Preaching is the communication of God's truth in a community. There you go. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's dialogical, not monological. And so some churches have what's called an amen corner. Some people put the amen corner up on the stage. I'm not going to do that to you, I promise. Um, but, but we have an amen corner. Do you know where our, our amen corner is? Yes, you've all pointed back to Jerry. I love you, bro. The amen, the amen corner is the shout. It's the shout. It's the, it's the, it's the, that truth is so huge, I can't help but say amen. And don't say amen to that because it's a weird thing to say amen. You'd be amening, amening. It's weird. This is Paul's shout. Romans 8, 31. He says this. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, you're queued up for that. 
And so I want to call this message, I want to call this message, No Question About It. No Question About It. That's the title I have for this. You learned at some point in your life that just because mom was for you, it didn't mean that people weren't against you. That was a rude awakening, wasn't it? That moment that mom told you that you were awesome at something and then someone had the indecency to tell you that you were terrible at it. I think this dynamic is why I loved the first couple of seasons of American Idol back in its inception. Because a lot of people who obviously had no talent, like there's no question about it, they went on the show, and their moms accompanied them on the show, and their mom was saying, you've got this baby, you used to sing me the sweetest songs at bedtime, and in the car, you have the voice of an angel, you're a star. They would sing, the judges wouldn't know what to say to them, and then you all watched for this one person, right, Simon Cowell. You just waited, because Randy was nice, and that other girl, the, uh, that one girl, she was like, whatever, you're like, you know, this is good, I'll let him tell you no. And then Simon would be like, that was awful, you should go cry in a hole. <laughs> if mom is for us, who can be against us? Not much of a shout in that. Anyone who has to defend themselves by saying, my mom is on my side, has already lost the battle. But if you say, my God is on my side, that's a whole different story altogether. We look at what Paul says that's come before Romans 8.31 and follows Romans 8.32, and we see that what, what he's saying is that it comes on the, you know, the heels of the incredible work of God on our behalf. In Romans 5, this is what I think the reference to uh, these things. What should we say to these things? These things, not just what just came before, but all the way back stretching, I think, to Romans 5 verse 1. Since then, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Romans 5.1, Paul tells us that God justifies us by faith by his grace, despite our sin, giving us his spirit to endure all things in this life which we believe are redeemable and will be made to work out for good in the end. And Paul reinforces this idea with what we've called the golden chain in verses 29 and 30, as Pastor Steve so well preached to us last week, that God has purposed to make us look like his son Jesus from the very beginning. And those who he predestined, he called, and those who he called, they are justified. And those who are justified, they are certainly going to be, as so much that you can talk about it is in the past tense, glorified. What then shall we say to these things, these works of God and salvation that he did apart from us in the past? What's our response? Our response is simply one of triumphant confidence. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's joy in this shout. God is for us. Who is opposing us? There's no question about it. The, the answer is who? No one. No one. Sons and daughters of God, you have an unstoppable God who is able to mow down the enemies of his kingdom for his people. You have certain confidence in the face of uncertain circumstances and assurance that God can and will work all things together for good for his people. Since God is for us, who can be against us? It's joy, it's confidence. In our corner is God Almighty. That's good news. I want to be careful here lest we make the mistake on what this actually means. 
If God is for us, who can be against us does not mean a few things. I want to parse this out because we could look at this, take it in isolation. You could be so excited about this. You could paint this on the back of your car and you could uh, imagine yourself invincible in a way that Paul never determined that the Romans should feel they should feel invincible. Here's here's the first. I'm going to give you two ways this doesn't mean something. The first is this. It does not mean, it does not mean that Christians will face an easy, unopposed life here on earth. This is not what it means to have God for you. Your experience tells that to you, but your heart yearns for something else, doesn't it? Your heart yearns for an easy, unobstructed, simple existence. We want more money today than we had yesterday. We want more abs today than we had yesterday. We want more shoes today than we had yesterday. We want a better pay scale than we had yesterday. We want so much more today than we had yesterday. And there is a temptation to say, if God is for me, who can be against me? Is to think that that is the key that paves for me all the riches that I want in this world. And that's not what Paul means. We want to be good students of the Bible. One of the easiest ways for us to do that is just to look at what comes before this text and what comes after this text. And I can't help but keep reading along in Romans chapter 8. Paul tells his Roman hearers the work that Paul is trying to do in the hearts of the Roman hearers. The first audience of this letter is simply this, is to um, encourage those who knew persecution and encourage those who endured public shame. Because these people that Paul was writing to, just a couple years after they'd received this letter, they would be stuck on stakes and used as torches to light the godless parties of the Roman emperors. If we believe that God being for us means no more enemies, then we would have to skip over Romans 8, verses 35 through 36, which say this. Check this out. I'm not making this up. We're going to get to this in a couple weeks, but let's just look at this today. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer to that, by the way, is no. But notice this. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I don't take this to mean that the Romans were on the easy path to life. No, rather the testimony of the apostles, the testimony of the early church, The testimony of church martyrs and the body of Christ around the world, even today, is that to be united with Christ is to share in Christ's suffering and to swim against the stream of the world. Do you know what in this world has no enemy? Dead fish. There's no enemy to a dead fish. A dead fish isn't eaten. A dead fish can't be lured onto a hook. A dead fish can't swim against the flow of the river. A dead fish just simply follows the current until it hits something or stops. Nothing bothers a dead fish. But to follow Christ is to be made alive and to wake up to the water and to start swimming against the tide that would try and push us where we don't necessarily want to go and to avoid the hooks of temptation that the enemy would be trying to snag us with. God being for us then does not mean that he makes life easy for us. 
We got that? Here's the second thing that God being for us doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God will guarantee that our plan will work out. I have friends, when they start new homes or businesses, one of their first desires is to dedicate the business or the home to the Lord, which is a fine thing to do. We just did this with children a moment ago. It's a good and godly right thing to do. If done as an act of worship and intention to say, God, have your way in this space, it's a great thing. What I'm afraid sometimes happens, though, is that we make all these plans based upon our own convictions and We simply ask God to bless it and try to woo him to our side. We do things like saying, if I go to church, he will increase my bottom line. If I pray more, God will keep the trees from falling on my house. If I pay for the person's coffee behind me in the drive-thru, God will have to pay it forward in my life. Friends, if Romans has taught us anything this far, it's how unsuccessful we are at spiritually manipulating God. In the middle of the Civil War, a northern statesman rushed into President Abraham Lincoln's office and said to him, Mr. President, I'm terribly concerned that we get God on our side in this struggle. The president turned to the statesman and said, I'm not at all concerned about getting God on our side. I'm concerned about us getting on God's side. And that's good Bible study. God is for us means that in his saving and justifying and adopting and sanctifying, God has mercifully called us to follow him, not for him to follow us. Since God has called us to follow him on his team, what can the enemy do to cause us to lose in the end? Which means you're not the general manager making life happen, soliciting Jesus to play for you. Actually, When you get called to God's team, he hands you a bottle of water and says, you're the water boy. Serve how I tell you to serve. Let me do the heavy lifting. I've got all the stats. You're going to get no glory. Just come, follow me. When God is for you, God is like a lawyer and what prosecutor exists that can defeat his legal arguments. God is for you. God is your protector. What can penetrate his eternal fortress? If God is your provider, who can ever take away what God has graciously given to you? God is for us, and no one who stands against you will be able to thwart God's plan. That's the truth. Friends, in this life, you will face opposition. And Paul's shout to us is take heart, triumphant, joyful confidence, knowing that though here on earth it may be struggle, it is No match to remove you from the eternal blessings that God is about to pour out in his son in eternal life. If there was ever someone with opponents, it was the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? He would go around the world. He'd go to one place and preach the gospel, and people would pick up rocks to kill him. And um, no matter, he would keep going. Once on a boat ride, he had a storm raise up on, a, on the sea, and he was shipwrecked. He had to swim to an island. I like to think that if, you know, we from Bethel sent some missionaries or someone on our go team to the Dominican Republic or somewhere, and our plane crashed in the ocean and there were survivors, that um, we wouldn't stick them on a lifeboat and make them have to finish out the journey. 
We would be going and getting them and bringing them home, putting them in the hospital, saying, it's okay, we'll do this again later. Paul gets on the island. One time he gets bit by a snake. That's fun. He um, is framed to be killed by the locals, and he preaches the gospel. And he says, no matter, I've been shipwrecked, I've been bit by a snake, but I got God on my side. So he preaches the gospel and converts them all. The Romans... What do the Romans do? They look at Paul and they say, you're causing too much problems. You're preaching Jesus too much. You've got to be stopped. And so they lock him up. Paul says, I'm glad that you locked me up because now I've got a 24-7 escort, someone from the Roman guard that I can preach to, and I'm just going to convert all of your guards, which he does. They say, well, we're going to cut off your head, Paul. And he says, great, that's a fast pass to glory. You cut off my head to live as Christ, to die as gain." See the picture? If God is for you, what in this life can be against you? And there is a triumphant confidence that we come in Christ to live out. If you've been saved by God in Christ, you have been adopted into the most powerful family in heaven and earth. No matter what comes our way, God will work it out. I think this should give us confidence, shouldn't it? Like, I, I think this should give us a little bit of a swag in our God. And yet, if I'm reading the day, if I'm reading the times, I think we here in this room are some of the most anxious people. I think we in this day are some of the most terrified people. I think we in this day are some of the most fearful people. I want you to just think of your own boogeyman for the moment. Like that thing that keeps you up at night. Like the thing that you're so terrified of happening to you. I want you to just get that in your mind for a moment. Like what has you nervous? What is haunting your world? For some of you, it's bankruptcy. For others of you, it's illness. Some of you are Truth be told, staring at a couple more days left in your job before you retire, and it has you really, really, really worried. Some of you, it's simple things like GMOs and MSG or gluten, libertarians or millennials, social media, Alexa and Google, the field of candidates for the 2020 election, the incumbents included, Putin, global warming, Vaccinations, public schools, tariffs, walls, in-laws, not on Mother's Day. Job performance reviews, failed relationships, your successful siblings, relapses, whatever it is. I don't know what your personal boogeyman, but, but, but they might have a bite in this world, but they can't take you out of God's hands or kick you out of his family. They can't stop God's advance or his charge or change his plans because if he has saved you, then he will keep you because he is for you. Our response to these things are then not fear, but joy and confidence in our God. 
There's a logic that Paul wants us to consider that proves God is for us. He asks a whole bunch of hypothetical questions. These are actually the, the, the questions that we'll look at in the coming weeks here at our church. But I want you to look down at your Bibles at this string of questions. Look, look with me at verse 32. Are you with me? You got it? Verse 32. Look at what it says. He who did, this is Paul's logic. He's, he's trying to prove the point. He's for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Like, no question about it, God will do it. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. No question about it, God is in control. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. No, no, no question about it. No one can condemn who God has freed. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No question about it. No way. Nothing can separate us from God. Amen. God is certainly for us. These hypothetical questions, I, I somewhat ironically titled this, there's no question about it. Because Paul gives a lot of questions about it. But that first question, that's all I want to consider in the couple of moments that we have remaining in our time today. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If verse 31 was our response, what shall we say then to these things? Verse 32 is about our riches, Jesus Christ. Follow the logic here. John Piper calls this verse the solid logic of heaven. It's an argument from the greater thing to the lesser thing. That's, that, that's, what, that's what's going on in this verse right here. This is what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to prove that the biggest thing's already happened, so the smallest thing is guaranteed to happen as well. This isn't new to us in Romans. It's so obvious, though, right here. So here's the greater thing. God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Christians, that's the truth that we bank our lives upon. God didn't hold back his son. God could have, but he didn't. The story that Paul is referring to, of course, is the entire life of Jesus. I want you to think with me for a moment. Jesus existed in the beginning. John's gospel tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was God in the beginning. That word in John is a reference to Jesus Christ. We see from Genesis that in the beginning was God, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is the one that Paul is referring to here when he writes, He, He who did not spare. His own Son is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. We are prone to forget that Jesus' life on earth is an act of mercy and grace from the Father. That Jesus was sent to earth. John's gospel tells us that we might believe in him, that Jesus would reveal God the Father to us. And his mission was to show us the Father so that we might have faith in him. And in believing in him, we would have eternal life. Jesus came to solve the problem of our sin, the same problem that Romans chapter 1 tells us caused us not to be on the side of God, but actually to be pitted against God under the wrath of God that God wasn't for us. Actually, God was against us. And if God hadn't spared his son, here's what life would have looked like. 
Adam and Eve would have sinned in the garden. Adam and Eve's kids would have sinned. And they would have died. And at the moment of their death, they would have been rightly judged and condemned to eternity in hell. And here's the uncomfortable part. God would have been just in that. It would have been easier for God to do that than what God decided to do. Because that would not have required the Father to send the Son into the world. That would not have required the Father to lay upon the Son the sins of the world. That would not have required the Father to forsake the Son and abandon him under his wrath. That would not have required the Father to crush the Son. That would not have required the Father to be humiliated in his Son's death. Had God spared his own son, he could not spare us, nor adopt us as sons. But God chose to substitute in our place of punishment himself. That's the shout. That's the amen. It's that he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Amen. This is the gospel. This is the reality that we base our whole entire lives upon. If God did the hardest thing, the giving up of his son for us, won't he do the easier things, the providing for our needs? If you've ever read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the idea that God gave up Jesus doesn't actually synchronize with what the gospel writers tell us. We ask the question, who gave up Jesus? I read it was Judas who gave up Jesus and betrayed him to the Jews. And then I read, it was the Jews who gave up Jesus to the Romans. And then I read, it was the Romans who gave up Jesus to the crowd. And it was the crowd who gave up Jesus on that cross to be killed. But I also read that on that cross, from the life of Jesus Jesus said to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Galatians 2.20 tells me that Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. Who gave up Jesus? It wasn't Judas. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't you and me. It was God. God gave himself up. For me. And how hard was that? Emotionally, it was turmoil. Spiritually, it was hell. Relationally, it was death. But eternally, it was life. Because God did the hardest thing to spare us. He gave up his son. We've been given the greatest riches that God possesses. His one and only son, Jesus, for us. I am... Um, I don't want to skip over this because what parent would ever willingly give up their own child for the sake of another? I like to think of myself as a relatively um, even keel guy. Sometimes I'm described as easygoing. But mess with my kids, you'll be reading about me in the papers. Right? Y'all be asking some Sunday, 9 o'clock will roll around. Scott will be frantically looking for me, calling my phone. Daniel will be freaking out. 
you'll be saying, where's Pastor Dan? And someone from the back is going to say, well, he's in jail. <laughs> Did you hear what happened to his kids? And um, he went after them. That, even kill guy, but the next Avengers movie will be starring me. And don't, don't think that God doesn't have that in him too. This deep, precious love for his son. This depth of, of, of relationship and desire and glory for his son. Don't think that it was nothing for God to give up his son for those who believe. It was everything for him to give up his son for those who believe. It was the greatest cost, the richest sacrifice. To redeem us meant that we needed someone more precious than us to take our place. And all glory to God for doing the hardest thing by giving up his precious son. Paul's argument is simply this. If God paid the highest price already, if he did the most difficult thing already, if he gave us Jesus, there's no question about it. He will give us the lesser things, all things. Look at it one more time with me. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? I can illustrate it this way. Um, you, you have a need, a favor to ask from one of your friends. Uh, you're moving some stuff out of the house. You need to borrow your neighbor's pickup truck. You drive, say, a um, Toyota Corolla, perhaps, like I do. It's a car that is excellent, except when you need to move anything. And then you bemoan it. But your neighbor has this giant F-250. And he owns a truck, so he's used to the code of truck owners which is to say, if you own a truck, put it in your garage lest others ask to use it. <laughs> I've used many of your trucks before, so this illustration, I guess, is a tribute to many of you. So you go to your neighbor, you say, neighbor, I have some things I need to move, and um, I just can't do it by myself. Would it be okay if I borrowed your truck for the day? And your neighbor, being a good neighbor, says, sure, no problem. I'll figure out another way to get to work. Why don't you take the truck? You can have it for as long as you want. You take the truck, you go home, you get your kids or whoever's helping you, you load up the stuff. You, the whole entire way, what are you saying to your kids? Man, isn't it so nice of our neighbor to let us borrow his truck? We couldn't get this job done unless we had this truck. How great is our neighbor that they gave us this truck? When I borrow trucks, my kids are just enthralled. Put the little you know, booster seat in the back and they go, Dad, this is the greatest truck. My son, Miles, literally the first sentence I ever heard him say was, Dad, that's a beautiful truck. Like, literally, that was his first full sentence. <laughs> you finish the job. You bring the truck back. And on the way back, you realize you need an extension cord. Yours is like three feet too short. What a terrible problem. And um, you, you tell your son, hey, when we drop the truck off, you're going to go knock on the door and see if our neighbor has an extension cord. You, your son says to you, well, daddy, what if our neighbor doesn't want to let us use the extension cord? And you say to him, what? You say, look, we've been driving around in a $50,000 truck all day. Our neighbors let us use this big old machine. I'm sure it's no problem for them to give us an extension cord for a couple of minutes. That's the point. God has done the hardest thing that could ever be done in history. 
God has done the scariest thing that could ever be done to you. He has put full wrath against sin upon his son in your place. So that when you believe in him, the worst thing that could ever happen to you has already happened to you. And you can walk in full confidence and assurance knowing that God is for me who can be against me. He gave up his son, his only son for me. How will he also not with Christ give me all that I need? All that you need in this life comes on the coattails of Jesus Christ. And here's the question. Here's where it hits us today. If you look at this verse, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not give with him, uh, graciously give us all things? You can split that into two sides. And I wonder which side of that verse do you love the most? Is it the giving of his son or the getting of all things? God giving us Jesus or you getting God's stuff? If you're more excited about the stuff, then Jesus is just like a key that you use to open a treasure box that you can throw away once the box is open. If you use Jesus to get a bigger house and a nicer car, you really love yourself more than you love Jesus. It's like getting married for money. Everyone around you sees what you're doing. They say it's just a matter of time. They don't really love that person. It's just self-love. But instead, if you see your riches as Jesus Christ himself and treasure him who was given up by God for us and cherish him and his work on the cross and his love for you, then he will hold you in the midst of the storm. When you are reviled, he will comfort you and say, yes, I was misunderstood too, but I love you. When you are wondering where this life is heading, he will say, it's heading to heaven, to me, to safety and prosperity and eternity. Just hang on just a little longer. When you're wondering if your needs are going to be met, you look to the cross and see how God has met your greatest need already. And it's nothing for him to meet your lesser need now. Do you need righteousness? You get it in Jesus who God gave up for us. Do you need mercy? You get it in Jesus who God gave up for us. Do you need a family? Well, you get it in Jesus, who God gave up for us. Do you need a new identity? You don't go online for that sort of thing. You get it in Jesus, who God gave up for us. Do you need wisdom? You get it in Jesus, who God gave up for us. You need contentment. You need peace. You need joy. You get all things in Jesus, whom God gave up for us. That's how he is for us. So does God love you? No question about it. The cross, it's proof that God is completely generous. The question is, do you love God? Is your response to these things one of joyful confidence about the riches that we have in Christ Jesus.